Today's podcast is brought to you by Harry's for a better way to shave. Please visit harrys.com and use the promo code PRIMAL to save $5 off your first purchase. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Hey everyone, it's host Brad Kearns talking to Bob Murphy over in Texas, the co-author of the primal prescription how are you bob i'm doing great brad thanks or as you're known on amazon robert p murphy with a voluminous resume of books and writing uh things that i didn't even know how much you'd written before this book tell us about your uh your background and what you write about usually well sure so i am a professional economist i originally was uh in academia at hillsdale college in michigan a liberal arts school I left that and uh, went in the financial sector for about a year, and then I went into consulting, and then it was only this uh, August of 2015 that I went back down to Texas, and now I'm at uh, the free, what's called the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University. Uh, so I, yeah, I, for years I have just been writing on what you might call free market economics, just to, trying to explain to the layperson through various books and articles and, and public lectures, just the the way capitalism works and how private property and, and sound money allow people to make plans and, and gain from trades with each other. And that very often when uh, politicians come in and try to fix things and make things better, they end up making the situation worse. Uh, right. And so we have this topic of the modern and the American medical and healthcare system, which is ripe for attack because um, I, I think people on on both sides of the partisanship, and you made uh, a, a great effort in in the book to identify this as not a, a political uh, problem of which side of the aisle, but just a a massive dysfunction that transcends you know party lines. Well, yeah, and I'm glad you brought that point up, Brad, because that was something that uh, Doug and I both really wanted to make sure came across that the the problem in terms of the the political debates in America has been that with the Affordable Care Act, or you know, what people call Obamacare, it has taken on a very partisan tone. And we knew full well that a lot of what even presumably conservative right-wing Republicans had been pushing were part of what was wrong with U.S. healthcare, in particular, uh, MTELA, the, the law that forces hospitals to treat patients even if they know they're not going to be reimbursed. And that was something that was causing serious financial difficulties and why, one of the main reasons why the Affordable Care Act was deemed necessary, that was signed into law by President Ronald Reagan, right? And so we, we really tried to take pains, as you say, to make sure that the book did not come off as something that was like anti-Obama or anti-Democrat because it really is not about political party. It's about taking care of your own health and, and how political officials from Washington coming in and trying to fix things just as in other areas causes unintended consequences. Uh, so this book, Primal Prescription, has had an interesting journey, I'll say, from our perspective. Um, you know, it was a dream 
many years ago with Mark that he wanted to uh, deliver some commentary on the, uh, you know, the flip side of the coin from Primal Blueprint, where we're talking about your diet and your exercise and being healthy. And now, you know, we're all part of this system. We all require medical care at, at certain points in our lives, especially when we're sick. And so the dream here was to have a message delivered by the right people that you know you could you could have that um, that perspective of taking responsibility for your health and not needing a lot of medical care through your life because you're making good lifestyle decisions, but also to come in on you know the the problems that we all face and with the insurance and the um, the actual medical care that you receive and getting a better understanding of what's going on because most people are are blind to the mechanizations of how the thing works, how you're victimized by some of the um, the decisions and some of the the framework that's that's flawed. So what happened was Mark put you and Doug McGuff together, and it came out with a very interesting book that's really a distinct two part book where you take the lead at the start, and we're going to ask you what you know what you're talking about through your chapters. But then the the second half of the book is where Doug steps in as an ER physician who's got that hands on experience and also um, a devoted athlete and and fitness trainer talking about how to, you know, stay away from these problems that you detail in the first place. So let's get into your first half of the book and kind of the story that you present for the reader in Primal Prescription. Well, sure. And, and you're right, Brad. This really is, to my knowledge, there really isn't a book like this. Uh, it, it really is. Uh, it was fun to, to write it with Doug because as a, an economist, I can certainly talk about sort of high-level abstract principles and say, oh, if the government has this kind of policy in place, this is what we can expect to see. But then, as you know, Brad, at several points throughout the book, we have little boxes to say an ER doctor reports from the front lines where, you know, in the main body, I will have brought in statistics or something and, and talked about general economic principles, but then Doug can say, yeah, and you know, this is what happened to me on the job to, to show the illustration of, of this general point. Just to give you one example of what I mean, in the early 2000s, the federal government changed the, the reimbursement formula uh, for certain types of drugs, and the idea was they would build in ceilings on how much more they would, they would allow the price to rise over time. And the idea was the federal government was thinking, well, if we're only going to reimburse up to a certain amount and we're going to have built-in caps on how quickly prices can rise for these particular drugs, well, then that will surely, you know, in our capacity as this big buyer on the market, we'll do our part to hold down price increases. But a standard economic principle is that if you try to impose a price ceiling, you know, if you try to keep prices lower than what supply and demand would dictate, then you're going to have a shortage, right? The suppliers aren't going to sell it anymore. They're going to hold it if uh, the prices aren't, aren't high enough to meet what the situation requires. And so Doug then was able to say, yeah, we noticed, he didn't know what the cause was at the time, but he just would notice in the ER that certain things that used to be readily available, even generics, all of a sudden were just on back order, like across the country. <laughs> and so they had to start mixing it themselves while they got a patient on the table. And, and so then you know, he himself independently realized that was the problem too. He had done his own investigation. So things like that really showed how you know these these abstract textbook economic principles really played out in real life? Yeah. So beyond that, though, as far as you know, the general contribution, what we do in this book is, in the beginning, we give a we because we, we we thought we can't just take the system as a given and then try to help people navigate through it. We thought we needed to give a bit of the background and have people understand why is the market for health insurance so screwed up? Everyone knows that that market does not behave the way other markets do, right? It's like the market for auto insurance. It's not like if you get fired, 
It's not that you lose your car insurance and now you're worried that, oh my gosh, if I get in an accident, I'm screwed. Whereas you lose your job, at least before the Affordable Care Act, you really thought I might I lose my health insurance, especially if I have a pre-existing condition. And now if I get sick, I'm screwed, right? And so we were trying to explain why is the system like that? And so the first part of the book, we go through a very quick but informative history of U.S. healthcare and show how time after time the government would come in and tweak things trying to fix some problem but then that would just sow the seeds for the next problem. And so it was just a, a cumulative process, and that's why we're saying the Affordable Care Act, despite the good intentions of many of its supporters, is just going to set things up to be even worse and more bureaucratic, which is all the more reason that people you know, should want to secede from that system and take charge of their own health and, and health care journey. That's a really good uh, big-picture description. I appreciate that because it gets pretty technical, and if you don't have um, an economics background and some of the terms escape you, you explained it pretty simply there. And I think um, as you read through the book and the different steps and the historical timelines, it seems like everything that happens that takes us further away from a simple free market transaction like we're so familiar with and everyone can relate to um, going down the street and and buying a, a sofa or a house and how the dynamics of pricing and demand work. Um, but here in healthcare, there's all kinds of interferences to that free market transaction that we're so familiar with in almost every other area of life. Well, yeah, that's a good analogy there. And we used that early on in the book, I think of the introduction, because I understand, believe me, that some people might recoil and say, oh, wait a minute, you know, I, I like capitalism or markets when it comes to my computer or something, but when it comes to healthcare, I mean, that's a basic human right or that's a, you know, a necessity and we really had to have some, but again, you wouldn't look, food and housing are more important even than healthcare, right? And yet you wouldn't want the government just to completely take over the production of food and distribution of food. We know that would be awful. That's what the Soviet Union was. People were starving, right? And so it's a similar thing here where by no means are we naive in saying, uh, oh, yeah, everything's the government's fault and these big companies are great. In fact, that's a nuanced part of the story where we're saying this present system is not providing one level of care for everybody. Actually, there's multiple tiers. And if you're rich, you have the ability to get special favors and treatments that the regular person does not have access to. And that the way to fix that is not to keep hoping political officials in Washington are finally going to get it right, but to rather open the thing up to competition. That's the way you try to ensure that people can get something, get high-quality products, is you have open competition. And so if some particular provider is doing a poor job, well, then that person goes out of business. People can go elsewhere. Um, it seems to me, from my personal consumer standpoint, that the inability to have this open, competitive environment for medical care is because it seems like it's too expensive. I mean, I was a, I was a patient this summer for the first time in my life, and, and talking to Doug and you know, going through some of these chapters in the book, I thought you guys were talking directly to me as I dealt with my emergency appendectomy surgery and my high deductibles and these bills that I received for $62,000. And it's like, it's almost ridiculous how far removed from reality it is when you're going back and buying food at the store and making car payments and dealing with normal transactions in daily life. So I guess maybe a question would be like, how did we get so disastrously far away from it where we have these gigantic, ridiculous price tags and escalating insurance costs for people that can't afford it. And therefore, we're tied in with our employers. Like you said, you get fired, you lose your health insurance. How did that get so ridiculous? Well, sure. Great question. So there's several strands there. So let me just try to give you some bullet points, as it were, for the purposes of this show. So one thing is in terms of, let me just give you one example of why is it historically that healthcare was associated with your employer 
Well, there's several things, but two of the big ones are during World War II, the government, in order to finance the war effort, among other things, you know, they, they had big taxes and so on and ran big deficits, but they also were printing a lot of money, right? They were running, they were having inflation, and that was the Federal Reserve was creating money to buy the war bonds and so forth. And so that left to its own devices, that would cause prices to rise really quickly. They're dumping all this money into the system. And so they enacted wage and price controls, right? So it was illegal to just have markets set the price for labor and so on. And so what happened then is, again, there's unintended consequences. So employers, they're trying to attract high-quality employees. It's illegal for them to offer more money, right, because they've hit the limit that year for what the government says you can raise your wages by. And so they started offering all these benefits because those, those did not fall under the purview of the, of the wage controls. And in other words, they say, yeah, you can't offer them more money, but you can say, hey, we'll pay for your health insurance. You come work for us. That doesn't fall under the cap. And so that was partly why it became standard practice for employers to pay for health insurance. Another major element here is the tax code. The way the IRS treats it, if your employer gave you $5,000 in wages or salary, and then you went out and spent that on health insurance, you would have to pay taxes on that, right? That would just be part of your salary. That's taxable income. Whereas if your employer gives you $5,000 less in salary, but then your employer on your behalf pays $5,000 for your medical insurance or your health insurance, then that's not taxable income to you, and the employer can write it off on his taxes as part of employee compensation. And so, in other words, it's like you're buying the health insurance with pre-tax dollars if your employer does it on your behalf. And so, for you know, high-income people, that's a pretty big element there. And so, that's just two examples of how government policies that normally you would think would have nothing to do with the healthcare sector steered people into it. And so we got into this perverse uh, situation where most people were getting their health insurance paid for by their employer. Uh, just to give you another example, again, just the big picture. So for one thing is notice it's not every single element of medical treatments where you see this phenomenon. If there are things that people can really treat as a business, like you go to the mall and just want to get uh, certain types of glasses or like even now they have like laser eye surgery that is becoming pretty standardized where you just go in somewhere and walk out or uh, elective cosmetic surgeries even. Those things that you see prices behave the way they do in the computer industry, right? They started out, they were super expensive and then over time they got cheaper and cheaper and the quality got better and more and more people started taking advantage of what used to be a luxury item. You see that phenomenon in areas where it's an elective and it's not considered just standard. It's, it's considered something you do on the side, like a luxury thing. And so that, that's part of the clue as to what's going wrong with general health care, like going to the hospital. It's because there, when you go to the hospital, it's not like you're going to the store and buying something at the Gap or whatever. <laughs> at the hospital, there's, th there's third-party payments, right? Most of the money that hospitals receive are coming either from the government or from insurance companies. And so... Just the, the, the link between the customer and the provider is very circuitous there. Uh, just to give one last example here is that th there was some experiment that someone did. At, they featured it on NPR about a year ago where a woman was pregnant. You know, she was going to. And so she started calling around hospitals trying to get price quotes saying, if I'm going to deliver my baby with you, what's my total bill going to be? And no one could even tell her even beforehand how much this was going to cost. And so how could you possibly expect market forces to work when the customers don't even know how much this thing's going to cost me before they buy it? Whew. <laughs> That's uh, a little bit of a problem. Uh, do you think it's the insurance industry that's interfering with that potential for a wonderful 
clean, free market uh, dynamic between patient and care provider? Uh Yes and no, and I'm not, I'm not saying that to try to be coy, but it's, it's a nuanced situation. So here, again, I want to make sure your listeners, Brad, understand, Doug and I in this book, we are not like saying, oh, yeah, everyone in the private sector is an angel. It's all these evil government people are screwed. No, that's not the story we're telling at all. We're saying these government regulations that many you know have ostensibly good intentions are creating a perverse environment so that the way you stay in business and become profitable as a health insurance company, for example, is to do things that make your customers miserable. So, for, for example, what's one of the predictable consequences of the Affordable Care Act, again, that's what people mean when they say Obamacare, is that if now, if you're a health insurance company and you're being forced, you can no longer turn away patients that have really expensive conditions like a you know, brain tumor or what have you. It's illegal to turn them away. You have to pull them into your pool. What do you do? Well, you'll do things to try to, you know, within the limits of the law, to get sick patients to not be interested in your insurance plan <laughs> and to attract healthy people. So you'll do things like not have the best cancer specialists in network. Right. You'll do things like you have to have some cancer special, but you'll do the ones that, you know, for people in this area, if they talk to an expert and say, who's the best cancer person, they'll they'll pick someone who's not in network so that they'll try to go find a different plan. And instead of that, you'll want to attract healthy people. So you'll offer all kinds of perks like, hey, if you go to a gym, you know, if you have a gym membership or whatever, we'll knock such and such off your monthly premium. Right. So they're they'll give all sorts of things that will appeal to healthy people to keep them on their roles, whereas they will do all things they can within the bounds of the law to not allow really sick people to get on their rolls because they know that's just a huge financial liability, right? And so that's part of the problem. But I want to stress that to give you, give your listeners an example here, just to step back and look at what's really screwed up here. Insurance in healthcare is vastly different from insurance elsewhere. Like when it comes to your automobile, you have auto insurance. And that's because you might get in an accident. You might have a catastrophic loss where you lose your car or, you know, heaven forbid you kill somebody or something and you have a huge judgment against you. And so that's what auto insurance is for, for when you have a really rare but very expensive thing happen, you have your insurance that are covered. But you don't have auto insurance to pay for routine oil changes, but that's the model we have in health insurance. It's flipped where you go in and you only pay a little bit of what the, the visit costs you just to go for a checkup, and yet there's caps on if you get really sick, and, and you, you have to lose your job or whatever, now you're going for treatment for leukemia or whatever, and there's caps on how much the insurance company is going to pay, right? So it's the exact opposite where when it comes to health insurance, they come in and they pay for the easy stuff that's predictable, and yet they don't fully cover you in those catastrophic situations. So what people need to realize is for some reason, the insurance market is not working in the healthcare sector the way it works elsewhere, like fire insurance for your home. You know, it's not like if your house burns down, the insurance company only pays up to 30% or 50% of the value of your home. No, typically when you have fire insurance <laughs> on your house, to say I'm insured means if my home burns down, I get made whole. But that's not how it operates in healthcare. Yeah, that's a tough one. So it, it, it feels to me like um, you know, as a healthy person, I, I feel like I'm kind of screwed by the system. And then if you're a sick person with chronic illness or you know, you've had a severe disturbance in, in healthy living, such as a accident or a long-term uh, issue, you're also kind of screwed because you're going to hamper their profits, unlike a healthy person. So we're all kind of, uh, maybe then it's kind of uh, a segue into the second half of the book where, gosh, if the uh, society ate healthier and took better care of themselves, some of these problems might right themselves. But in the meanwhile, now you're sitting on this pile of trouble. 
Yeah, and that's great and a good a good summary, and and that's why I was so happy with with the stuff Doug could bring to the table here. That obviously, just as an economist, I'm not qualified to to advise people on. But you know, there's a whole chapter on getting off your meds and things like that. Where it, it's just ironic the analogy of as an economist, I could sit there and diagnose historically in terms of economic principles how things that were wrong then people in D.C. would come in and try something new, some new intervention to fix it. And it might address very, in a very short-sighted way that one little thing, but then it would spawn other problems. And then they would say, whoa, 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 this, this thing, the situation was worse than we realized. And they'd come in again with some further intervention. And ironically, Doug was kind of showing that that's what happens with the human body oftentimes, that they come in, there's something that's not quite right. They misdiagnose what the problem really is, and they come in and treat it with some drug and then that may address that you know narrowly conceived issue medically, but then it causes something else. And then instead of realizing, well, wait a minute, we're taking the wrong path. Let's back up and try to fix this holistically. Instead, they say, oh, let's give them some other drug and let's give them some other. And they just keep doing that before you know it. You know, the patient's completely dependent. Just like right now, the American public is utterly dependent on the government for their health care. Right. That it, you know, we go through the book, the statistics about how many people now, especially with the Affordable Care Act, are having their health care one way or another subsidized heavily from Washington. Well, that's not a healthy system. That's not a system that can sustain itself when most people in some form are getting assistance from Washington. Because obviously the government doesn't have resources or money on its own. It's not like Santa Claus swooping in and giving us stuff for free. It's only getting it by taxing everybody. So really it's not making the country richer as a whole. It's just redistributing things and screwing up the incentives. Uh, speaking of that, you have a, a provocative section in there saying that Medicare is a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid scheme, in other words. Can you explain what's going on there so that um, we can ponder this as we uh, age into the later decades? <laughs> well, sure thing. And again, I know it's a very, you're right, we say it to be deliberately provocative to get people's attention, but uh, by definition, what do people mean by a Ponzi scheme? When you think about like Bernie Madoff or something, what does that mean? If you, and we even have, I think, the SEC's legal definition of this is what a Ponzi scheme is, and of course it's illegal. And what it means is that early investors come in, they give their money, and then the stuff they're getting out of the enterprise is not because the enterprise is actually profitable and is generating dividends to give to those first investors. No, it's that they then bring in new investors behind them and take their money, their, you know, what they are using to pay in, and then they take that and hand it to the people who already were in earlier. And that's what a Ponzi scheme is. And clearly it's unsustainable. If you don't have enough new people coming in, the whole thing collapses. All right. What I just described is exactly how Social Security and Medicare work. That when the government takes, you know, your, your payroll contributions, they call them the FICA taxes on your paycheck, they take money from you and they call them contributions. They, the government, the federal government doesn't go and invest that in corporate stock or something or go invest it in farmland or genuinely productive assets, they use it to just fund government spending, right? That they borrow with the so-called social security trust fund is just a bunch of pieces of paper saying the federal government owes this money to you. And so that's not that the government's sitting on these real assets, just one part of the government owing another part of the government money. And so the way it works, the way, the reason it's been able to sustain itself over time is that enough new workers were being born and rising up and then they're having their paychecks taxed in order to fund the payments that were going to the now retired people who were getting Medicare or what have you or Social Security. And so that is a Ponzi scheme according to the standard definition. And that's why demographic shifts are posing such difficulty for these uh, what are called entitlement programs. 
because it's just the aging of the population relative to when FDR brought in Social Security. Things have changed. So now, and especially over time, fewer workers are going to be supporting a growing population of retired people. And so the numbers just don't add up anymore. And it's just standard statistic. When you say, well, we say it's bankrupt. We don't, we're not using that term metaphorically or as an analogy. I mean, literally, if you sit down and, and the, we quote from the government's own actuaries who do this, the Social Security Trustee Report and so forth, to just run the numbers and they say, if we project forward what the likely contributions from future workers are going to be and what the likely uh, payments out according to the, the benefit formulas we've established right now, the systems are bankrupt. We're in the hole many trillions of dollars. And so that's that's what we mean when we say it's bankrupt. And so part of what we're trying to do there is to sh- it's a twofold thing. One is to say to people, don't trust, especially if you're a young worker right now, don't trust that you're going to have your health care paid for by Medicare when you retire, that that system is going to be broke by the time you get there. And also just to generally say, look at how much the government has botched things financially when it's tried to take care of health care for seniors and so what do you think is going to happen now that through Obamacare, they've basically applied that to the whole country? Hi, listeners. It's Brad Kearns here to talk to you about one of my favorite subjects in the world, shaving. <laughs> okay, maybe it's just an ordinary subject, but when you get serious about your shaving and go to harrys.com for the very finest quality blades you can buy in the world at an affordable price and not have to bother with hassling at the store for those extremely overpriced and inferior quality blades from the name brands, That's right, harrys.com is a direct order shaving blade and accessories company where you can get the finest quality blades in the world direct from their factory in Germany at a fraction of the price of the outrageous prices that they charge, even in the big box stores, for those name brand blades which are inferior quality. I have to admit, I never really paid much attention to the quality of my shave, and I don't even shave unless I have to leave my house and go see people, which is rare occasions. But I have to say, when I started using Harry's products, there's a discernible improvement in the closeness of the shave, the comfort, the lack of itchiness afterwards, and also chicks dig it. I mean, I have received lengthier and more frequent gazes everywhere I go after shaving with Harry's products. And you will too. Well, maybe results will vary, but you might as well try it because their starter kit is only $15. And when you use our code PRIMAL, you get an additional $5 off so you can get started with high-quality shaving, see how it works for you, for only 10 bucks, and then get on the program. You can reorder automatically. Shipping is always free, and you'll always have those clean, top-quality blades from harrys.com. Yeah, you didn't uh, talk about this in the book. You focus on the U.S. healthcare system, but do you see any models that are shining examples of a system that works around the world or... Even if if you answer no, like in your mind, if President Trump or President Clinton called you in next year and said, hey, Bob, you got a month to fix this. We're going to do whatever you whatever you suggest. Um, what would you do? <laughs> I would have to do a lot of studying for that month. OK, uh, two months. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's we did. You're right. In the book, we had considered doing international comparisons because that was one of the key elements in the debate over the Affordable Care Act is people were saying, wait a minute, you know, government takeover and how could you possibly expect government to keep costs up? And people were saying, well, over in Europe, you know, they have a very generous social safety net and they provide health insurance or health care and, and things seem fine over there. So yes, there are a lot of international comparisons, uh, but we did, we just, the, the book was already, you know, the ideal length for what we were trying to do. So we didn't go down that path in this book. 
there are lots of um, data to suggest that in other countries where, like even Canada, you know, and I talk to uh, actual medical providers in Canada, people who live there, and there's certain things, yes, technically, oh, it's, it's very affordable and so on, but if you need a hip replacement, a lot of people I know, they come to the U.S. and get it done because there's a huge wait in Canada to get it done, things like that. So uh, I don't think there's any one country that's doing it right. Um, various countries have different permutations, like some, they the government will be there to provide payment, but yet you're allowed to opt out of the system. You know what I mean? So you, in other words, you can do it privately if you want. And so I think you'll see in those countries, things work a lot better when there's this escape hatch for, for, for people to use. Um, there's also, in terms of international comparisons, what's called medical tourism, which we just very briefly discuss in the book. And that, again, just underscores why something is really screwed up with the healthcare sector because it even you even see in the United States, a given hospital, it, you know, they say what prices do they charge for a certain procedure? They will charge different prices depending on whether you're just some local person with standard, you know, Blue Cross or whatever, and you go in and get this procedure done versus if you're someone, let's say, from Canada who's coming in and calling that hospital and saying, hey, I'm from Canada. I'm wondering how much would this cost me if I pay you out of pocket? Nice. <laughs> Those are vastly different numbers. And so that shows you know, that something is screwy. But again, it's, you can't get mad at the hospital. They have to do that to stay in business because by law, they're forced to treat so many, anybody who shows up in the ER, they can't turn the person away. That's illegal, right? So they have to somehow make up for that. And of course, they're going to respond to incentives that if somebody's calling from Canada who's going to pay cash, they know, well, that's a paying customer. That's money in the bank. How much does it cost us on the margin to do that operation? They can run those numbers. Whereas somebody rolls in, which is regular health insurance, they know well, we're going to have to spend months dealing with their insurance company and then even the amount the patient owes, he may not pay it. And then we're going to have to put it up on a payment plan. And da, 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 you know, So it's kind of a messed up system where because it's so expensive, people don't treat it as real and they don't, uh, they don't you know, you get a medical bill sometimes in, in the mail and you're just like, that's crazy. And you're, you just, you don't treat it the same way as if that's what your cable company sent you because you know, well, it's a medical bill. I'll, I'll pay him $50 this month. I'll call him up or whatever. And you don't treat it the same way you would treat a bill from your credit card company. And so because of that, that means now the, the hospitals, when they do get paying clients elsewhere, they have to charge ridiculous amounts for an aspirin or whatever because they have to somehow stay in business. Wow. Yeah. And I think there's a few mentions in the book, both in your section and Doug's, about um, you know the opportunities to bypass all that nonsense and have that direct one-to-one uh, -one relationship as a consumer with a medical provider. And one of my favorite examples is the, uh, the opportunity to order blood tests online without needing to go visit a physician. And I use directlabs.com, and you go on there and you look at their smorgasbord of blood test offerings, and they're at a fraction of the price of you know, the blood tests that come through on your medical bill that your doctor ordered, but you can go pop for uh, you know, 50 bucks and get your uh, thyroid panels run or whatever you you know, have a personal interest in as a, as a really health-conscious consumer and primal liver, maybe there's things that, uh, you know, your doctor doesn't address, and now you have some opportunities in the system to um, take direct action and be an advocate for your health without having to suffer through the, uh, the red tape, so to speak. Well, yeah, and, and by the way, Brad, you're, I didn't fully answer your question. Uh, see, I was being a good economist. I was just saying some stuff without answering the question. <laughs> Or asking me what advice, and we, we kind of get at this at the, the final chapter of the book to sort of give, you know, say, hey, we've told you how to navigate through the system, but what could be done more broadly? In terms of just big principles, I would say that the government should amend things so that 
anyone who wants to opt out of the system, and that includes not just the patient, but also the providers, that they're able to do so without legal consequences. And so for your listeners to understand where I'm coming from, just think of an analogy as, as Uber, right? The way that that works is there's plenty of people, you know, if the issue is what's the service we want is sometimes someone somewhere, a pedestrian who wants to have someone else's vehicle help transport them somewhere. And conventionally, you had to use taxis. And in cities, the way that works is you have to, it's a very restrict, it's a cartel that you need one of those special medallions that can cost more than $100,000 in major urban areas to get one of those things. And it was illegal for anyone else to try to run a taxi. And then Uber comes along and it's clearly, you know, pushing down prices and being more efficient. And many consumers say, actually, those rides are much nicer and more pleasant than a typical taxi cab. So in many places, now the, the cab drivers are pushing back against that and they wanting the government to crack down. So you had that same phenomenon when it comes to healthcare that there are very strict rules on who is allowed to administer certain medical procedures. And yes, people can be alarmed and say, oh my gosh, I don't want some quack giving me, you know, doing brain surgery on me. But just think through the logic of that. Do you really think a major hospital is going to hire someone to be a brain surgeon who hasn't been to medical school, who hasn't you know, been an intern or what have you? That's really not the right fear. And so I think one thing the government could do is to say, for example, look, we're still going to have the FDA give its recommendations about which uh, procedures and which pharmaceuticals are safe and effective. But if you talking to your doctor want to try something that we haven't approved, you're allowed to do that. We're not going to, you know, the, the company in question is not going to be breaking the law if they sell you that thing. But, you know, just buyer beware. We're not, we're saying that's, we're not endorsing that. So because right now there's plenty of people who want to try certain experimental techniques or drugs and they can't because it's illegal in this country. The FDA has not approved it. So that's just one example of how the government is preventing experimentation and it's keeping all sorts of people out of the supply side of providing healthcare, just in the same way by analogy, uh, those medallion restrictions kept all sorts of vehicles from being able to give people rides. And so that's why taxis were more expensive than they are now if you bring an Uber. Details coming in Bob's next book, Uber Medical Care. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, I, I have to say, you know, the reading is, is really lively and provocative. And, you know, we've already got some comments from people saying, oh, this is, you know, right-wing blather or something. And I have to say to those people, you know, they completely misunderstood the, the angle that was taken in the book. But at the same time, it's hard to get your mind around some of these things because we're so conditioned to the restrictions and the kind of the, um, you know, the long-standing step-by-steps of, of things like healthcare that are so far removed from free market. It's like hard to even, uh, you know, fathom such something so simple and direct, but it's nice to think about because we are, you know, seeing all the imperfections come to the come to the forefront here. Whether you're healthy or whether you're really sick, it doesn't leave anybody behind in terms of um, the negative impacts. Well, yeah, and I just and I'm very sensitive to that, and I appreciate how people, especially you know, in, in the primal community, and I, I knew that some of them they might not have thought of themselves as libertarian necessarily, and they might say, well, yeah, this this seems real political. And there, I just I would want to stress that everybody can recognize something is screwed up with the current system, and clearly, and I think a lot of people can see like these big pharmaceutical companies, for example. And they know that they're selling people stuff that's not good for them and they're doing it to make money. And so therefore they conclude, aha, see, the profit motive does not work when it comes to medicine. And that's why we need a different kind of model. But what I would say is the problem there is that this is not a free market system. So yes, people chasing money and what gives them the most uh, return to their investment 
gets screwed up and perverted in the current environment. Whereas if you didn't have the government setting up a cartel and had the FDA come in and handpick winners and losers, then you have open competition. And so companies that really were selling shoddy products that were killing their customers, they would go out of business. And so we, in the book, we have a whole chapter on the FDA and show, just to give one example of how there was a private watchdog group called Worst Pills, Best Pills, and they had correct <laughs> for every... For every uh, pharmaceutical that the FDA reversed itself on, right, that originally it approved it and then later changed its mind, said, oh, wait a minute, and pulled it, this private organization had called well ahead of time, in some cases by years, and predicted and said, no, the FDA is going to pull this thing because this is not safe. And so that's just one example to show the issues. Look, everybody's fallible. There's nothing magical about having experts go work for the FDA that all of a sudden now they can evaluate pharmaceuticals better than people in the private sector. And so the issue was just which system is more likely to produce better results over time. And in most other areas, we recognize if there's a monopoly and just one group that has little accountability, then you're going to expect them to do a bad job. Whereas if there's open entry and there's different competing groups that can offer, for example, recommendations about whether this particular technique is safe or not, well, then that's going to be better and give consumers more choice. Hey, Bob, this stuff is pretty heavy, man. I really appreciate you taking time on the podcast. And I wanted to give listeners just kind of that, that basic exposure. I mean, we could go deep and probably go for three hours here. But um, the, the book, too, is it's not a light, breezy read. I, I have to say, I was the narrator, so I spent about nine hours reading this thing. Uh, but it's really something that I would say you're obligated to, to read this thing and learn about this stuff because it's going to touch every single person you know, including you. And it's very complex. And it's the, the way you... Um, you know, carefully described it, like you said at the start of the show, you know, taking that economist perspective and bringing it to the layperson in a manner that they can understand. You did a wonderful job at that. Um, the book only launched uh, last week, which would be late October, and it's right now it's number one paleo book overall on Amazon.com. So it's been very well received by the early readers. So uh, congratulations for doing such a great job. We'll have another podcast with Doug McGuff to get into his part two of the book, but. I think you've uh, whetted everyone's appetite wherever you stand on the political spectrum, especially. This is way beyond uh, all that fun and games. And um, boy, it's, it's, uh, it's been a privilege to be part of this book project. And hopefully our listeners will run out and, and grab this thing and get the audio or the digital book or the print book and um, you know, educate themselves about what's going on. Well, thanks, Brad, for the opportunity to talk about the book. And I do want to extend my thanks to uh, Mark for introducing me to Doug and, and letting us uh, go forward on this project. Because, again, it's, I knew for a while that healthcare was re- was an area where something was really wrong in terms of the economics. It just obviously was not working to deliver goods and services to consumers the way it does in TVs or cars or computers. And so what's going on there? And so this really gave me the opportunity to jump into it. And it was great to have Doug there to be able to guide me and to say, yeah, that matches up with my experience on, in the front lines, as it were. All right. Bob Murphy, co-author of The Primal Prescription. And if we want to catch up with you, are you, are you banging it hard on Twitter? Or where should we uh, visit if we want to learn more? Uh, my website is consultingbyrpm.com. Got it. Consultingbyrpm.com. Thanks for spending the time. Thank you, listeners, for the Primal Blueprint Podcast. This is your host, Brad Kearns. See you next time. Many health experts believe that gut bacteria represents the next breakthrough in optimizing health and immune function. When you nourish healthy intestinal flora with primal eating habits and the high-potency probiotics in primal flora, you can...
protect yourself from the everyday illnesses and compromised digestion that are common in stressful modern life. The unique strains of probiotics in Primal Flora help you improve digestion and regularity, bolster immune function, and can even assist you with weight loss by optimizing fat metabolism. One daily capsule is all it takes to ensure your body is thriving with billions of healthy gut bacteria so that you can enjoy optimal health 24-7. Order Primal Flora today at PrimalBlueprint.com to take advantage of our risk-free trial.